Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we interview the producers of interesting materials and try to learn a little bit more about their background. The person we're speaking to today is Todd Bukins, who is a language lecturer at Ritsumokan Asia-Pacific University, but more importantly, was the creator of Elo.org, the English Listening Lesson Library online. How are you doing, Todd? I'm doing good. Thanks, Chris. So the citation we're going to be looking at today is the website itself, but in order to get some uh, background uh, and also to demonstrate how long Todd has been doing this for, uh, I'd like to draw your attention to an article in the Electronic Journal for English as a Second Language, which reviewed your site back in 2004. Yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> right when I first came out, actually. And could you give us some uh, idea of where you got the idea from? And uh, also, uh, you mentioned before that some research that you did at Temple University led to the beginnings of this website. Yeah, exactly. So um, I was an uh, MA student for the TESOL program at Temple University in Japan. And uh, I took three courses and I lucked out. I took three courses in a row and it pretty much shaped my my views about language teaching and also gave me the motivation to start the site. The first course I took was on teaching children, actually. And it was by um, Dr. Mitsue Alan Tamai, who is probably the best professor I've ever had. She had such a wonderful class. And she talked about how children learn through unstru unstructured language. Um, and that really made a big impression on me because, you know, a lot of what we teach is very structured. Mm. And then the next course I had was with Dr. Edwin Alou, another fantastic teacher. And um, it was on speaking and listening. And again, it was it was talking about the course showed how people um, learn language naturally through unscripted language. And that most of the language we hear when we develop our first language and even our second language is unscripted, yet most of the printed materials is scripted. Hmm. You know, we've all seen the, the conversations like, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. And you? And so obviously there was a, a, a lacking of authentic materials in publishing. And so I kind of got the idea to start it. And then the next course I took was on computers. And that was it. Before I started the site, I actually didn't know anything about computers. I couldn't use Microsoft Word. I couldn't use PowerPoint. So I kind of lucked out by having those three courses in a row. And it's noted in the review here that even at this time, you had a wide range of accents and people from different backgrounds. How important was it for you to have that kind of range in your materials? You know, it, it was really important. Um, I, at the time, was just kind of using common sense. Um, I knew that if the students were learning English, their chances of actually hearing uh, somebody from a native-speaking country was, was low that they're more likely were going to hear another foreigner in their country speak English, or if they traveled to another country, it was going to be with another person that didn't speak native speaker English. Um, and also there are so many international speakers who speak native like English. I mean, it's virtually the same. So because none of the published materials had that, I was kind of looking for a hook and, um, at first, I got a lot of pushback, actually. People told me not to do it. They said that if you have speakers that don't have perfect English, they won't use the site, etc. 
But I kind of stuck to my guns on that, and that definitely, definitely paid off. And so I'm very glad that I did. Yeah, just looking at the front page of your uh, website right now, you have English, and is that Danish and American? Actually, there's over 100 countries represented. Wow. Um, yeah, so we have over 100 countries. If you name a country, we probably have it, and I could probably even tell you the speaker's name and what they talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's been great because, you know, not only do you want to have international speakers, and by the way, I like that term, international speakers. I don't like non-native English speakers. I prefer international English speakers. If you have international English speakers, they can say so many more interesting stories, and you can hear things straight from the source rather than have you know somebody from um, America talk about what it's like to go on safari in Africa. Well, it's better mm -hmm. just to talk to somebody from Africa about a safari. So uh, that's what we have on the site. You know, for example, we have one of my favorites is David from Kenya. Mm -hmm. And he is talking about uh, the most dangerous animal in the wild in Kenya. And you would never guess what it is. Could you take a guess? Uh, a hippo? <laughs> that would be a good Yes. No, he says, actually, it's a buffalo. Oh, the buffalo is the most feared animal because if a buffalo is excommunicated from its group, it's just mm. out for blood. And so if you're walking in the wild and you see a buffalo by itself, it's really scary because if it sees you, it's just going to go in attack mode. Maybe kind of like bulls in a ring, I guess. I don't know. Mm. But like it's stories like that that you hear from people around the world that they know all these little bits um, that just make the site a lot more interesting. Yeah, I I always complimented your site on having a wide range of different activities because it isn't just one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations or monologues. It is a whole range of different types of activities. How did you come up with the ideas for these activities? Uh, gosh, it was kind of a, a mix or a blend of trying to do stuff to get teachers to use the site. So you would do the, for example, the multiple choice quiz which I really don't like, but I have to put uh, put up there. It's kind of like parsley on a dish at a restaurant. <laughs> um, you got to put it there. And if you talk to anybody that does extensive materials, either extensive reading or extensive listening, we all gripe about multiple choice quizzes, but we have to put them there to make teachers go to the site. So first you develop activities that make it learner worthy. So teachers will want to go to the site or direct their students to the site. And then you also try to do activities that will hold the student's uh, interest. So I have a couple goals with everything that we produce. And one of them is that the language is easy enough for a student to understand, but it's interesting enough for a native speaker to want to listen to. And so that's the first goal. And then the second goal is that it's engaging in a way that a student would, would do it at least 10 times. I call it the rule of 10. Mm -hmm. So if you think about anything that we do that we enjoy, usually you'll do it 10 times. For example, a book. You know, if you really like a book, the success of a book is, is pretty much the rule of 10. Like if you read a little bit, put it down, pick it up, read it again, put it down, pick it up, read it again. If you do that 10 times, that means you really like it. And it's the same for TV shows or restaurants or whatever. So we try to do kind of engaging activities that keep students wanting to come back. Yeah, we actually use um, the contents from your uh, from your site in our call classes here at Kyushu University. 
And oh, really? I'm always worried or maybe a little bit nervous that uh, the content that I have on the site that we did back in 2008, I think, oh, right. um, with me and Lindsay Mack talking about getting married, not not to each yes. other, by the way, <laughs> about yes. planning our about planning our weddings. Um, yes. I always think that that's going to come up on a test or something and my students are going to have a, an unfair advantage. Um, right. But back you know, to and the, actually that, that listening is a good example of why you need authentic materials because that was over 10 years ago, but because it was natural and you were really painting the narrative, I can remember that in that lesson, and there are over 3,000 lessons on my site, in that lesson you said you wanted to go to Iceland for your honeymoon because they have onsen, they have springs. That's right. We actually went to Okinawa, um, right. but uh, it was... Uh, <laughs> Still an island. <laughs> Still an island, yes. I Check one for that. One of the things that you were doing back, because I went back and checked the scripts and everything for the for the ones that I did. And one thing that you were always really good at was picking out the kind of natural phrases and trying to make those the, the key points of the lesson. We call those, we used to call those audio notes, but you know, that really stuck out. Um, so when I first started doing the, the, uh, the transcripts, I would notice these little bits of language that people would say naturally. And, you know, one of the things about kind of taking the entrepreneurial approach instead of the academic research approach is that it's like um, the Malcolm Gladwell thing about um, uh, uh, 10,000 days, basically three years till you kind of master something. So I knew nothing about applied linguistics. I didn't know anything about international Englishes or any of that. But when I kept on seeing these transcripts, I was like, wow, everybody is really rich with their language. Like they're using all this metaphorical speech, figurative language, and it comes up a lot. And actually, there's there's a math pattern to it. I actually started to calculate it mathematically. And basically, there are five bits of real rich figurative language for every two minutes of unscripted speech. And there's just so much. I thought, well, we, we better start explaining them. And so what we do now is every time we do a transcript, we comb through it. Um, there's a figurative speech right there. We mm -hmm. we go through it and we find the five richest bits of of figurative language, and then we explain it to the students. And that's uh, very much uh, all the way back in 2004. This is something that the writer picks up on uh, with the authentic listening and also the way that you present the material to people. So uh, going on your rule of ten, uh, you don't use the listening material just one time you you present it in a different way you show it with a script you give it with questions and so it really does encourage the students to come back and try again uh yeah i know exactly right and actually back in the day when i first started the site the way that the html was was designed how the web pages were written it was a, a certain um methodology there was a certain methodology to it so it used to be the first listening you listen for gist and you just listen without reading and then the next listening you can read and listen and then you can listen again for detail we don't do it that way anymore hmm. but yeah the whole point was that listening should be done in cycles and um you know i'm really big in the extensive reading community and there's a very small small extensive listening community we're kind of like the sad losers over in the corner <laughs> that nobody knows about um but we are so close in so, in so many things that we want to do, but we are also so different. And one of the biggest differences is that people 
just by nature are, are willing to listen to something again and again and again. It's not as bothersome. And actually how your brain works is when you listen, even a native speaker, you will not hear everything. That's right. It's almost impossible to do. But when you read, because it's not um, ephemeral, like you can stop things and you can go back, you can control the speed, you can look up and down and see what words you've already read. Um, it's different. And so you can get a lot more meaning. Whereas in listening, you know, you kind of listen in waves and pulses. Mm. And so when you listen to something, there's going to be a time when you just didn't hear it. It wasn't so much that you couldn't understand it. You just couldn't hear it. You didn't hear it. It just slipped by. And so it's very important that we have activities that are one short, they're not too long, and um, that they give the opportunity for the, the person to want to listen again. I believe it was Sigmund Freud who said that uh, people are telling us who they are all the time, but only some of us are listening. And he was trying right, to make exactly. the point that uh, the more that you listen to someone speak, the more you learn about their personality, you read between the lines, you learn a lot more about who they are by the words that they choose. So I think by having the authentic listening on your site, uh, we and we listen to several of the same person, I think we learn uh, a little bit about the, the person as well, like the things that they choose to talk about. So it does make it more like a community activity than uh, a learning activity. Right, you are so right. And actually, you bring up a really good point. Um, there's a lot of debate about what is authentic listening. And mm -hmm. some people will say, well, actually, what you're doing is prompted, so it's not really authentic, yada, yada. But what is definitely true is that all of the listenings, or most of the listenings on the site, are unscripted. And this is one of the things that I really try to get out, and I wish more educators and publishers would address. And that is, when you speak uh, uh, unscripted, language when you do it extemporaneously it's not prompted or it's not like you're not reading something you have so much more emotion and information actually in your intonation mm. and there there's a cadence there's a rhythm there's all these things that we have when we speak naturally without reading something and when you read it it's almost impossible to replicate the same bits of meaning that's why actors have to read their lines again and again and again. Now, people probably won't hear this because you we're going to cut it out. But like when you did the intro, you fumbled your words a little bit and then we started again. I do that all the time with Ello. You know, I'm always like tripping up because when you think you have to say something, when you're following something that you have to say, you'll trip up. But when you are just speaking freely and you don't have to follow what you have to say, you just, whatever comes to mind, it's instantly, there's a lot more um, information in your voice and it's just so rich. And I think that's why podcasts have become so popular because when you listen to a podcast, it's all unscripted. Uh, this one being a perfect example. So you can really get a lot of, of rich meaning, not just from the words, but also from intonation and things like that. That's right. I mean, it, th I think that's why when you're listening to something, it's so difficult to remember because if you're only listening to it, you're having to process so much uh, in real time. And so right. I've always said that the most difficult thing for uh, my students in, in their classes is the extemporaneous speaking because thinking and speaking at the same time is incredibly difficult and doing it in a second or a third language is always going to be that much more difficult as well. So 
We're actually going to be covering listening uh, in a future podcast coming up with a former colleague of ours, Mr. Joseph Siegel. Um, yes. And so he Good is. Good friend. Yeah. And so he is uh, into extensive listening as well. And uh, so that will be uh, something interesting to listen for in the future. I'd like to move on and talk about your progression of your skills as well, because one of the things that the uh, reviewer pulled up was the fact that there wasn't any feedback or intelligent feedback. And uh, when we were talking about this, you said this was this had annoyed you in the past, but it actually meant you had to learn some new skills. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, yeah, my skills have gone up uh, a lot. And uh, I actually have a story that I like to tell, if you, if you don't mind. Sure. And I do. I like to tell the story to encourage other people that might be intimidated by computers. When I started that first course, um, Computers for Educators, I was by far the lowest student in the class. I didn't know anything. I literally had to go to a bookstore and buy a, a dictionary of terms, digital terms, because the first class they were saying all these terms, I didn't know what they meant. Um, for example, they would say Firewire and Fireworks and Firefox and blah, 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 all these different terms. And I'm like, what? What all sounds like the same thing to me? And um, I had to learn slowly. But then once you get the kick and once you kind of figure it out and you realize that actually you don't have to be that smart to learn about all this technology, there's always smarter people that are creating products that make it easier for you. Then you kind of get on a path and then you realize, wow, this is great. And actually, ed tech is a lot like cooking. It really is. That's why I have another website called Meals, meals.org, that, that has free ed tech tutorials. And every ed tech tool is just a like a piece of equipment in the kitchen that you use for cooking. And each technique that you use when you cook is just like a different little coding skill or something you know, that you learn. And um, you would be surprised. It does not take that long to ramp up and learn a lot of skills. Well, that was some advice that you gave me because we worked together at Ritsumeikan APU from, I think it was 2007 to 2012. You were working with me on the, on the online courses, the call courses. And I think the first thing that you, your advice was, uh, you know, before it was an insult, you basically told me, learn to code and try right, and yeah. skill up that way. And you kindly at a, at a reasonable price sold me your old Mac, which had a, a Dreamweaver on it. And right. yeah, I, I just, I went away and taught myself how to uh, make websites and pages and things like that to put into a learning management system. But I would never have done any of that without your, without your motivation. And exactly as you say, without saying, this is what I did and this is what you can do to make yourself more skilled and a better prospect in the, uh, in the language teaching community. Oh, that's really nice. I really appreciate you, you saying that. Um, so I, I have a question for you. Sure. So after you learn these coding skills, do you feel like it made you a better teacher and saved you time? Well, at the time, I wasn't focusing so much on the language teaching side. I was on the course organization side. So being able to do all these things meant it easier to, uh, you know, create the courses online, be able to share them with other teachers, allow the teachers to, you know, come up with new ideas that we could uh, that we could do. I mean, the people in our team would say things, wouldn't it be cool if, and I would be thinking, yeah, right. you're right. I'll go and ask Todd how to do that. And then you'd teach me how to do it. And then I'd, I'd go away and, you know, make it for the, for the web pages. So, um, 
yeah. So moving on from uh, from skills, what would you say is the biggest change that has made that's been made on the site since it started? Oh, uh, you mean Ello? Yeah. Um, oh, well, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I've kind of gone back to the structured way. So I do a lot of grammar lessons. I do a lot of you know, Sefer level lessons um, before I really wasn't into it that much. Mm -hmm. So I offer a lot more structured type listening activities. Um, I script them. <laughs> I have lots of scripted uh, animations now. Um, there's like a sister site called Sound Grammar. So I've kind of went back to maybe what the market wants. But of course, we still do the the, the natural listenings. Right. And you brought up meals.org, which was uh, a new website. Um, that rather than teaching language, teaches skills to teachers. Could you tell us a little yes. about that? Yeah, so that uh, this is a site that I also started after grad school. Um, Got to clarify here. I actually never graduated from Temple. So what happened is, is after that computer course, I dropped out. Was like the you know the cliched guy trying to you know create a startup. Dropped out of Temple, and part of it is because I had to move. Um, I couldn't stay in Tokyo. I got a job at a university. Um, down here in Kyushu. And then I went back and got a master's degree through San Diego State University in instructional design, basically ed tech. And uh, one of the projects I did there was creating a, a site for teachers to learn these tools for free. Um, I'm a little bit of a proselytizer when it comes to ed tech. I'm always like getting people and saying, oh, you got to use this tool and you got to use that tool. But I, I would like to say, though, there are basically two types of ed tech people. There's the Steve Job types and the Martha Stewart types. So a Steve Job type is somebody who just wants to make things because they're cool and kind of kind of show off like, oh, look what I can do with computers. And the Martha Stewart type is somebody who is just very re resourceful. They'd be like, wow. oh, wow, did you know that you could use PowerPoint as an audio player? Um, did you know that you could use um, uh, uh, Kami? Uh, which to edit files online and use it like a whiteboard. So that's kind of the approach I like to take with meals, actually. And how did you come up with the name? Uh, I just thought, well, I got lucky it was available. I, I wanted meals.org with an A, and then it wasn't available. And then I, I thought, well, what about if I do two E's? So it's M-E-E-L-S dot O-R-G. And I thought, like, you know, like meals, like, you know, you you feed somebody, so this is kind of the same thing, right? You're 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 nourishing people, kind of. So, um, yeah, I, I got the name meals.org, and I lucked out. So it kind of goes well with the site. Now, a little bit of uh, business talk. Uh, how many visitors do you get a month to your sites? Um, Ello gets about it gets about fifteen thousand a day. It it depends on the season, depends on the day of the week. But a month, I guess it would be about 400,000 visitors a month, depending on the month of the year. It changes, right? So, like, right. there's different school seasons around the year. So, but usually the busiest month is November because pretty much in November, the entire world is in school. Uh, April, kind of the same. It's usually a big month. And we've had conversations in the past about textbook design. And I know you've been in textbook design uh, groups in the past that we could talk about. But which of the large producers of textbooks and uh, which of them do you think is getting closest to really utilizing the online space effectively? Oh, you stumped me on that one. 
I will say this though, they're all getting better. Mm. I used to be really snarky, you know, and be like, oh, these textbooks. Um, and actually the little story is that when I started Ello, I was criticizing textbooks in that speaking listening class. And the professor, Dr. Edwin Alou was like, well, then why don't you make it? <laughs> so that's kind of was like my prompt to go make Ello. Um, but since then, you know, the publishers, they've really done a good job, I think. Um, all the big ones are, are kind of coming along and uh, they make really interesting books. They offer videos that can go with the books. Um, and one thing that people have to understand about textbooks, it's really easy to criticize them, but they are working within really tight parameters. Hmm. So when you are an independent person like myself and you are doing a web-based type publishing where you have no parameters in size or length or anything, um, we have a lot more freedom of what we can create. Whereas the publishers, you know, they have so many pages or so much real estate on the page and the publishers, um, they take a lot of criticism because people will say that their books don't fit their needs. But it always reminds me of my favorite quote about movies from Hugh Grant. So somebody once asked him why he didn't make indie movies. And he said, yeah, making an indie movie is great because you're only making it for 10 people. Try making a movie for a blockbuster with grandma and her teenage grandson. Right. Um, and that's kind of the problem that the publishers have. But the good thing about them is they have lots of resources these days and they're all kind of moving online. Can't really specify one though. Well, I mean, I always find uh, if I go to one of the larger conventions here in Japan, every year that I go and I go and talk to the publishers, they they are they are innovating and they are doing uh, things, but they are basically following the pattern set by people such as yourself um, to push them to produce yeah. better materials. Because if there was no competition, they wouldn't need to. In that case, when you are producing your materials, what is your image of the end user? Like, who do you see as your target customer? Oh, that's a good question. A really good one. Um, actually, first of all, I usually make all my materials for teachers. So the teachers are your pushers, right? They're your, <laughs> your, your sales force, your free sales force. So, you know, your teacher, your average teacher um because we've both come up from the lower ranks right you know mm -hmm. the the conversation schools teaching kids the whole thing right um you know they have a lot of hours busy days little time for prep large classes and so if you can make materials that they will use that the students like mm. then you've hit you've hit a home run and so usually i try to do stuff for kind of conversation teachers and also a lot of um international english teachers um you know teachers where english is not their first language where maybe they don't have the confidence and background to to do stuff, so I try to create materials that's easy for them to use with their students. So you you kind of you're pitching it towards the teachers mainly, yes. but you know that the students might come back and try it again by themselves later, or you hope so. Yeah, because actually, you know, the thing is, is it, in, in terms of from the business side of it, you know, really, it's like I scratch your back, you scratch mine. So the teachers will be your your salesperson. Hmm. And I cannot tell you, I, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I probably heard this, oh, three, four hundred times. Somebody's written me over the last 15 years and said, oh, I like your site. Your my teacher recommended it to me. I'm guessing you get most of your business from Japan, or is that is that not correct? No, and actually, it's interesting the cultural aspect of it. Um, Japan doesn't like the site that much it's it's interesting because some sites um some in some countries it's really big it's kind of like you know the heavy metal thing like oh we're really big in in germany mm. um my biggest 
uh, users are France, mm-hmm. Spain, Brazil, and Vietnam. Hmm. And by far, they're always one, two, three, four. And they kind of rotate by the season. Uh, and I, I've asked, you know, users before our teachers, like, hey, why, why do you think it's good in, in Spain? Or why do you think it's good in, in, in France? And it's interesting. They all have a different reason. So, um, well, Brazil and, and Vietnam say English can be really expensive in their country and it's free. Right. And so that, that's the, the main, like, the main reason. But I heard the French, it was popular with the French because, uh, it's not affiliated with any country. It's not British English. It's not American English. And so that kind of resonated. And also it's unstructured. Some cultures prefer the unstructured where you just listen. Like, hey, I got it. I got it. I don't want to take a quiz. I just want to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some, some cultures like the Middle East or maybe Japan, they want kind of a top down, like teacher student role or relationship. So it doesn't do so well in those, those cultures. It's interesting. Um, so what kind of changes are you thinking to make in the future? Do you have anything, you know, coming down the pike? Uh, yeah, I do. One is we will continue with the, um, the grammar points. We're trying to basically create a full free course from level one or level zero all the way to advanced. Um, and it will have a mix of a little bit of grammar. So they can watch some short animations and then some natural speech about those topics we're going to try to add a lot more graded listening that's authentic, which is actually really hard to do hmm. for the lower levels. Um, you know, that one thing about unscripted speech is when people talk naturally, they almost always talk at the same level. So you, you really hit it in the middle. So if you're not reading a script and you're just speaking naturally, you're going to be between high, high beginner and mid intermediate. And the sweet spot is low intermediate because the grammar is very simple. And the vocabulary is is not that difficult. You don't use big words because there's no time to edit what you say. Also, there's more redundancy because you're saying the same thing again and again. And because you're having to speak as you think, you have a tendency to repeat yourself. The pauses are, are more natural. So it's really hard to get high level with, with you know, um, high level vocabulary because you just can't think of it on the spot. And it's really hard to get low level, like, you know, total beginner because the longer you speak, you tend to speed up and you tend to make your grammar a little bit more uh, complex and your, your vocabulary a little bit more idiomatic. So I would like to try to really add for those two areas. And sadly, really, the only way you can do it is to kind of script it or outline it for the speaker. I would think so. Yeah. I mean, that was one of our criticisms when we were looking at uh, materials in textbooks was that you know, nobody speaks like this when they're trying to shoehorn right. in 10 or 12 key words. Um, yeah. It doesn't, doesn't, really, doesn't really sound like any conversation you've ever had. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a problem. It's like, it's, it's the great, you know, it's the holy grail of like, you know, in my, in my business is to get, get it. But, there, you know, uh, there, there are untapped people out there uh, that can really help us out. For example, a lot of senior citizens are really good at speaking slow and simple. And they don't, they're not too wordy. They're not too verbose. Hmm. Um, and then also if you get people in certain professions, doctors, lawyers, stuff like that, they can wheel out some really, um, high level English and, and, and spew a lot of, of high level vocabulary like yourself, like a professor could do. Um, so it, it is possible. It really is. And, um, one of the things that I try and 
teach in my uh, my lessons is the ability for students to you know scale up and scale down the difficulty of their speech so being able yeah. to change their vocabulary their grammar their enunciation the speed um and as you say just something as simple as uh repeating yourself at the end of the sentence or summarizing uh, really helps uh in kind of building uh, a conversational rapport um but that is yeah. something that, that that it really does take practice you're right now right um, and, I, and actually i think one of the things that we need to start doing in the future is just putting in more pauses between natural english right so for example when we speak naturally a native speaker will speak between five and eight words per second mm. it's hard to believe if you and it's like a car if you try to speak that fast when you start out you can't do it but as you get going the words really start popping out and especially if you're throwing in like articles and prepositions and uh auxiliary words you can really pack in a lot of words. Like, for example, you know, if you say I am going to really fast in English, it's I'm going to. So if you say, yeah, I'm going to call you tomorrow. Well, I'm going to call you tomorrow is probably what, eight words. And that's a second. So what we could do is say, I'm going to call you tomorrow. Silence. Mm. Are you, are you going to be home? So we give the students more time to process it. Yeah, I forget who was, uh, I, I don't remember the person who, uh, said it but he was a uh, who was a person who did impressions of other people and he said that jason statham says that six words in the english language faster than anybody else and those words are right. do you know what i mean and he just says them all like, right you know what i mean you know what i mean yeah I mean. yeah exactly <laughs> yeah yeah so that's so true and we have so many of those i i call it ghost english um and i love to share this with the students to help them out so they don't feel bad like, you know, English is really when you, you have one of your problems is ghost English. And that is what you hear um, is not what you see and what you see is not what you hear. And even though we have a scripted language, it's still not the same. How we write English and how we actually say it is really different. And unless we're going to bust out the, you know, um, IPA chart, International Phonetic Alphabet and start writing like that, then we're never really going to have a, a, a match between the scripted language and the unscripted language. Well, that's right. I mean, the whenever standard English comes up or what type of English uh, should be taught, um, it's always the difference between... Because standard written English basically is... It doesn't change very much from location to location. Uh, but spoken English changes a lot, and it's because of the, all the different levers that can be used to change how it is produced. So the pronunciation, the speed, the lexis, the grammar, all of those things. But in uh, written English, you only have lexis and grammar. You don't have that problem right. of speed or pronunciation. Or, so it really is tricky. Yeah, and here's an interesting stat. Like, if So English is now pretty much the international language. Everybody, uh, not everybody, but a, lot of, well, a large portion of the world studies English so they can communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. But what's fascinating about that is that we do it mainly through text. I mean, text really dominates how people learn English, more so than, than the spoken word. And what's interesting is that if you were to go back 200 years ago to England, the country that started it all, you would find that less than half the people in England were literate 200 right. years ago. And that, when you really think about it, that has deep implications because we've been... Our, our bodies have been designed to speak 
thousands of language for thousands of years mm-hmm. with no script. Mm-hmm. And yet now we flipped the script, pun intended, and we are saying, okay, we're going to learn language, but it's going to be mainly through the scripted medium, not the oral medium. Oral, I can never say that word right. Mm. Um, and so it's kind of interesting that we, we you know, because of the, the industrial age and the, the invention of the, the printing press and how we really built education, um, we rely so much on text. But the only reason we do that is because that's the way we, we had to do it when we didn't have the technology. But now we have the technology that we don't have to rely on script so much. I'm not saying, of course, that, you know, reading's not important. But what I'm saying is that we really underutilize just the spoken word. Well, it, when we look at the history of the English language, it was the printing press which democratized the language. It brought uh, information to um, many more people. And it's interesting to think that, that basically that revolution occurred again with the uh, invention and wide use of the internet, which is really what has given English its kind of second uh, push, the second diaspora, um, to spread it to all parts of the world that um, weren't really required to use it for any other reason. But now to access this media online, uh, English is now a, a, a gateway to it. It's, it's so true. And actually, the, one of the greatest things about that is you asked me what I'm doing now. Like now I'm making sites to learn Japanese, to learn Thai, to learn Spanish. Um, I'm trying to make the blueprint to so we can do any language so we can make it accessible for for other languages as well, um, because now we, we live in such great times. And, and speaking of which, I know that maybe we're getting to the end. Can I can I recommend five uh, tools for teachers in these troubling times where we have to teach online? Well, uh, that's really interesting that, that you bring that up because my, my final note here is before we go, could you give us three or four things that every teacher should have uh, on their laptop? So uh, you've, you've preempted that, but yeah, please do. Okay. So for the people out there that can't see me right now, I have a huge smile on my face because I love talking about this stuff. <laughs> okay. Here are five tools that if you use they will make you look like a rock star as you teach online. The first one, number one, is Nearpod. So Nearpod allows you to add interactivity to PowerPoint slides or Google Slides. You could put in audio or video. Um, and all, what's amazing is you could add quizzes. You can add um, matching games. You can add drawing activities. You can add uh, uh, like text writing activities. Um, there's just so many that you can do. You could have kind of like collaboration boards to set up a topic. So Nearpod now is my number one favorite tool. This company is crushing it, how awesome their app is. And because of the situation now, you can get it for free, I think for 30 days, the full package, all the tools. And even if you don't have the full package, you have what's called the silver account. Um, it's, you still get a ton of free stuff. Okay. So Nearpod. Okay, and then, Nearpod and it's a n e a r p o d dot com. Now there's a, a lot of these things. It's like Noah's Ark. They come in twos. There's another one called Pear Deck, p e a r d e c k dot com, and it's almost the same. And it's a plugin with Google Chrome, um, but it's not as good as Nearpod. But it's catching up. Um, the second one I would say is uh, again, you can choose. Um, you should put all your students on OneDrive or Google Drive. And teachers, a lot of teachers don't know about this simple thing. And that is you create a folder and then you create a folder for every student. 
and then you share that folder with every student and that's your private line of communication. So you can share all your work in that shared folder. So uh, I actually prefer OneDrive to Google Drive, but they're both really good. And students can put a, a Word document in there and you can share it and check it. They can take notes. Like if you want to go old school, you can have your students take notes online and then take a photo of the paper that they wrote in their name, uh, of the notes they wrote in their notebook and just upload the photo to the shared file. They can do it with the app on the phone really easily. They can take a photo of a, a book. Um, you can do PowerPoints. And also OneDrive is really good because with OneDrive, you can use the PowerPoint as an audio player or a video player. So if you want to do a video and you don't want to show it, let's say, on YouTube, where there's going to be a lot of other distractions, you can actually put a video in PowerPoint, upload it to OneDrive, open up it in OneDrive, and it plays just like a, a DVD player. Hmm. Um, so anyway, I got three more real quick, uh, blogger. So I love blogger because it can be what I call your, your class away from class. So you can have it as a landing page or a launch pad. So a launch pad is you want to start an activity. Let's say you're doing zoom. You can share it. They can just go to the class homepage and they have a link and that link can go to any of the sites that you want them to go to. So you don't have to worry about typing it in. Also, if a student, um, misses class, they always know just to go to blogger. Uh, the other one would be Google Forms. I absolutely love Google Forms. It's the greatest way to have self-graded quizzes and also to do activities and get assessment. And then finally, we have the big three. That would be Quizzes, Kahoot, and Quizlet Live. So you can do um, interactive games with the class. Uh, and they get, you know, they're all in different remote areas. So all of those apps together make it so easy to teach in a very engaging way. And... Uh, this is not, I'm not selling anything. It's all free, uh, uh, pro bono or also quid pro quo, I guess. Um, you can go to meals.org, M E E L S dot O R G. And there's links to how to do all of these for free. So we can show you step-by-step how to do it. Or you could always just go to YouTube and, and type in for tutorials. That's great. Thank you very much. The, uh, yeah, it's one of the things that I've always tried to recommend when people come and ask about how to create courses or create content online it's exactly that you want it to be engaging because just as we said at the start of the interview um, the students have to want to come back so so long as yeah. you, you you're giving them different avenues to first of all being communication with you but then different ways of you know different forms of media that they can interact with uh you're just going to you're going to try and get that um what what we used to term uh, time on task you're going to yes. in, increase that um not by telling them they have to do it but by them wanting to or uh you know feeling that they're getting something out of it uh you're so so right and also just um to help teachers that are a bit anxious like teaching online remember that the students for the most part are really really forgiving and nice and helpful and when you are going to use something for the first time um, don't get nervous like, oh, no, it has to work. If it doesn't work, uh, I, I know I'm going to I'm going to look bad um, before you try anything new. Tell the students you're going to try something new and make it inclusive. Don't say I say we. So be like, hey, everybody, we are going to try something today on Nearpod. It's the first time we will be listening to uh, a video in the platform. So let's see how it works and let me know if everything is OK. And if it doesn't work, then you say, oh, OK, well, it looks like it's not working today. So we'll try this again at another time and then just move on. 
Um, and when you become accustomed that things are just going to fail, you know, in, in tech, we love the phrase, um, break it. We like, we like to break things. You know, you don't want to be perfect. You want to break everything as fast as possible because once you break it, then you know how to not break it. Um, and then you get over that, that hump. That's really funny because one of the, um, research projects that I was part of the last three years was to make, uh, an app, a language learning app. Um, uh-huh. for iPhone and, and also Android as well. And uh, the person that, who was developing the software for us uh, basically said, okay, here's the new version. And he said exactly that, break it. because, And then right. take yeah. a screenshot of when it breaks and I'll go back yeah. and debug it. So I just gave it to my kids. And right. kids can break things oh, really easily because they're just constantly pushing idea. buttons and, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's it's how, what... it's how kids learn by, you know, Again, going back to that point, unstructured um, learning, they're just tapping buttons and they can, and then they, they find the things that are wrong with it. And I've always said that that was one of the great things about Elo. You could, uh, you can click anywhere on the screen and you're going to get an activity and it's probably going to be interesting. And right. you're probably, yeah, <laughs> but you're certainly going <laughs> no to promises. learn something. Yes, no problem. Yeah. But you're certainly going to learn something about someone that you didn't know about, you know, five right. minutes ago. Yeah. And, because people keep coming back, I mean, I, I notice uh, another former colleague of ours, Daron Klemmer, has uh, reappeared um, here. And I think when they've when there's a series of videos, uh, five or six videos in some kind of series, um, they might, I mean, the, the students might, you know, like to like that character, or they might like that person, and yes. uh, you know, they're always getting a little bit of extra content. Yeah, well, that, that's that's the aim, you know, um, and the whole thing is. Uh, you do your best. There's no such thing as perfection. And you just hope that, you know, it works out. You know, and speaking of that, I, I, I got to throw a compliment to your, your co-host. So you, we talked about break it. Mm-hmm. I listened to the, the previous podcast about the, the gentleman from Kansai mm-hmm. and about anxiety, right? Yes. And Jonathan, I was so happy he said this. He said, often in academic research, there's a tendency for people to cook the books. Yes. And they are afraid to just say that, you know what, the research shows it doesn't work or the research really did, doesn't go anywhere. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that happens in, in our field all the time, you know, the whole like break it mentality. And I thought that was really cool that he brought that up in the last podcast. Yeah, that, was, uh, that was Simon Humphreys. Simon Humphreys, yeah. yeah. And I, they, they both talked about it, how Simon said that in his research about anxiety. Yeah, thank you for the name. Um, and that your, co- your co-host, he brought it up. So kudos for that. Well, you want to be, uh, well, if you, if you go back and you listen to the interview that I did with Mark Helgeson, um, we were talking about, uh, happiness and how to be happy. And one of the things that, uh, some people, uh, in my line of business want to do is they want to feel successful. They want to feel that they have achieved something. And so this was something I talked about with Mark, that achievement is, uh, it's one of those things in life that makes you feel that you are improving as a person. But yeah, exactly as uh, Jonathan Simon discussed last week, uh, in order to have an achievement, some people oftentimes go too far. And um, I believe the phrase, I was talking to another one of our colleagues about it, when he was looking at data was called P hacking, where you do the experiment, you find the highest P value, and then you jerry rig the methodology to make it look like that's what you were looking for anyway. 
Yeah. And uh, it really is difficult to know sometimes whether this amazing discovery comes from fantastic methodology and well-organized research or whether the person just got the data, did a bit of p-hacking and uh, yeah. found out what the secret was and then reverse engineered everything to, to match that finding. But uh, we should hope that more people are like Simon and like Jonathan and like yourself who are willing to say it didn't work this time, but uh, I'll come back, I'll try it again and I'll get better at it. So I think that's a, I think that's a good message to end with. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you for having me on. I've had a great time. This has been fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time, Todd, and uh, good luck with your lessons. Thank you. If you'd like to contact the show, then you can do so at lostincitations at gmail.com. You can also like and rate and leave a comment at the places where you download your podcast from. We also have pages on Facebook and LinkedIn, but the most important way would be, if you do like the show, recommend it to a friend, a colleague, and see if they like uh, the content that we're putting up online. Thank you very much.